64th episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Cole, host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, continues to receive industry-wide praise. All proceeds will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Information on a wide range of medical topics can be found on his website, robertperlmd.com. Robbie, given how much has happened since our last show relative to medicine overall, in this week's podcast, we'll once again focus on COVID for the first half, but reserve the second half for more general news. Let's begin with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What happened and what does it mean? Jeremy, the highly transmissible BA.5 strain continues to increase in prevalence in the United States. Now accounts for more than 80% of all cases. And in Europe, it accounts for 100% of new cases. For that reason, the United Kingdom has already authorized the use of Moderna's new vaccine, which includes protection against both the original coronavirus variant and the more recent Omicron ones. The vaccine approved in the United Kingdom targets the BA.1 variant, but that is far more similar to the BA.4 and BA.5 than the currently available vaccines, which are based on the original strain that plagued our country in early 2020. It's expected that the vaccine made available this fall in the United States, however, will target the BA.4 and BA.5 along with the original virus. However, the details are not yet available. The Biden administration has promised to buy 66 million doses of this new vaccine for $1.74 billion, with an option to purchase up to 234 million additional doses later this year. That combined with the deal that included buying 105 million updated vaccine doses from Pfizer means that every American who wants the added protection will be able to obtain it starting in September pending, of course, FDA approval. It's estimated that one third of the nation or 100 million Americans could become infected by COVID in the fall if the added vaccine protection is not provided. It's expected that the vaccine rollout this fall will begin with the people at greatest risk of severe disease and death and then expand to the broader community. But of course, so far only about 30% of adults over the age of 50 have received their second booster. So it remains unclear if they will decide to take this new one. On a different topic, as you know, Jeremy, we keep getting questions about long COVID. The newest data that was just published in The Lancet comes from Dutch researchers, and it indicates that one in eight people with COVID develop long COVID symptoms. As you know, we've had a difficulty figuring out the exact risk to individuals. This 12% rate is a solid estimate for the actual short-term risk going forward. And I think it's a good one for listeners to rely on. Robbie, a listener asked if there's any explanation besides bad luck that both Dr. Fauci and President Biden experienced rebound COVID after taking Paxlovid. The answer is twofold. First, rebound COVID may be more common than the studies we discussed in the last episode concluded. 
but most likely the common link between their two situations is how often officials like these are tested. At least in the president's case, his symptoms were very mild and no one may have known that he was having a rebound case without daily evaluation. Similarly, because elected officials are tested so often, their original infections may have been discovered extremely early and treated sooner as a result. As a consequence, neither might have developed a strong immune response. Then of course, when Paxlovid is stopped at day five, whatever virus remains begins to replicate and produces what really is much more a continuation of the disease rather than a true rebound. As we've said here before, the rapid antibody test requires a person to have a moderately high viral count. As such, the president could have just dropped below this level but remained infected after five days and then tested positive a few days later as the virus replicated and reached the positive test threshold level, meaning that rather than a rebound, again, it's just a continuation of the original infection. For listeners who are curious, at present, the CDC does not recommend presumption of Paxlovid should rebound symptoms or a new positive test occur. Last month, over 1.3 million patients were treated with Paxlovid for early COVID-19 symptoms. Robbie, as you predicted, COVID has become an endemic virus with both steady number of cases and intermittent spikes. Can you tell listeners a bit more about what is likely to happen long-term? Jeremy, as Yogi Berra said, predicting the future is difficult, particularly when it has not yet happened. However, we can see a pattern emerging. There's a persistently high number of cases with relatively mild symptoms in the general population. This comes from the high transmissibility of the virus. And then there's a subset of people, the unvaccinated, the elderly, and individuals with compromised immunity. This is the group that's becoming very sick and dying. As BA.5 has become even more dominant, this highly transmissible strain, with its ability to break through prior immunity, is increasing the number of cases in both categories, both individuals with reasonably good immunity and individuals at high risk. As a result, more people are becoming sick each day. We know that approximately 30% more, more individuals are testing positive and a similar percentage of additional people are dying each day, approximately 30% more than recently in the past. We can expect that this current peak will soon recede, but there's likely to be another one coming in the fall as people gather close together indoors. And we can predict that there will be a next variant with even greater transmissibility that will produce a next spike later this year or early in 2023. Of course, if enough people get vaccinated with a more specific vaccine, these peaks may be truncated. And then at some point, there'll be a sufficient number of mutations that will overcome the added immunity and this revolving cycle will continue. And then of course, at that point, there'll be discussion about a next version of the vaccine. You know, Jeremy, what's so different about COVID compared to the flu is the lack of seasonality with this coronavirus. As such, there's no break between waves as with influenza. So the continued risk and the need for added coverage become continuous and exhausting. 
Having said that, there is some optimism that over time, as people become infected again and again and vaccinated multiple times, that immunity will grow, danger will diminish, and possibly the risk of transmission will decline. So far, however, that optimistic view remains speculative. Probably a listener appreciated our coverage of monkeypox early in the outbreak and requested an update. Monkeypox is now being discussed as intensely as COVID-19, although the number of cases is far lower. The U.S. has passed the 10,000 case level, and that's just documented patients, and it definitely undercounts the actual total. Similarly, there's about 35,000 worldwide cases that have been documented, and that number is growing rapidly. In fact, the total number of cases increased by 20% in the past week. In response to the growing number of cases, U.S. health officials have declared monkeypox a public health emergency. The move was designed to speed up distribution of the monkeypox vaccine. This requires two doses given 28 days apart. And this follows the World Health Organization, the WHO, declaring monkeypox a global health emergency last July. Currently, the vaccine remains in very short supply. As an example, the health department in California estimates that it will need 800,000 doses. And so far, it's received less than 10% of that quantity. Although the Biden administration announced the purchase of 2.5 million more doses, it's not certain when or if all of them will be available. There's only one manufacturer of the vaccine in the entire world, that's Bavarian Nordic, and the company announced that it won't be able to produce anywhere near the number of doses that the world needs. One of the approaches the federal government is using, or at least planning to use, is to maximize the limited supply of vaccine by administering it in a way that is different than what is done with COVID vaccination at present. Instead of being given the vaccine intramuscularly, it will be given just under the skin surface in what is called the dermal layer. Theoretically, based upon a study from 2015, this achieves acceptable immunity with one-fifth the dose. As such, the amount of vaccine which would have been used to vaccinate one person can now be used to protect five. However, this approach is very controversial. Since the technique has not been proven for monkeypox, although as we've said, it's been used on occasion in the past for other vaccines. And give, but given the shortage of vaccine, it's the best hope our nation has to protect the large vulnerable population. And the intradermal route with one-fifth the amount of vaccine has therefore been given emergency use authorization by the FDA. The other approach that policy experts considered was to use a full dose, but give people only one shot. This was rejected since there's no data that a single injection will be sufficiently protective. Unexpectedly, monkeypox in the US is presenting differently than in Africa. The traditional manifestation of the infection has been fever, body aches, and body-wide rashes. Now there are cases with only a few pustules in the genital area, and at least so far the mass majority of people infected continue to be men having sexual relations with other men. The monkeypox vaccine is effective, even when given after exposure. 
as such it's recommended for individuals who've had sexual contact any time over the past two weeks with a person who had or has been diagnosed with monkeypox and preferably it's given within four days of exposure. So far, there is no home test and even the laboratory PCR test, it's a similar test to the PCR test used for COVID, still requires that they be a pustule from which material can be swabbed. Finally, monkeypox is in the process of being renamed by the World Health Organization. And they're doing this for a variety of reasons, including that the monkey isn't the primary carrier of the virus and the potential racial associations with the label. For those listeners wanting an early prediction, the leading candidate now is a two-word label, orthopox virus, monkeypox. We'll see where the WHO committee lands. Besides vaccination, are there any treatments available similar to Paxlovid for COVID? Jeremy, yes. There's an antiviral medication, Tecoviramat, with TPOXX, that appears to be highly effective in some patients. They report almost immediate relief of extreme pain from the lesions caused by the monkeypox virus. But here's there's a catch-22. And to me, it's a great example of where the rules that exist in healthcare are so difficult to break, even when logically they make no sense in a different context. This medication was developed to treat smallpox. Smallpox is a highly lethal disease that was eradicated around the world thanks to a massive vaccination effort. The virus is kept for research purposes only in a few labs. With no human cases existence, there's no way for scientists to conduct a typical experiment to test this drug against smallpox. Instead, they tested for efficacy in animal models where it's worked well. And they also give the drug to people who don't have the smallpox to prove that it is safe. And based on all this research, the, the FDA gave approval for its use to treat smallpox under what is called the animal rule. The animal rule means that when human subject research is impossible and unethical, animal studies can be substituted and the FDA can give go-ahead approval, assuming that the medication has been given to volunteers who don't have significant side effects or complications. Although plans were underway to test this drug specifically against monkeypox in Africa, the current global epidemic began before that study could be performed. So here you have a drug, it works in the laboratory. It has broad anecdotal efficacy in people with monkeypox. There are no major drug risks in people and it's already been approved by the FDA for smallpox, which is a closely related virus to the one that causes monkeypox. So why not make it as easy to obtain as Paxlovid? The answer is we're caught in bureaucratic rules. The upside seems so much greater than the downside. And we have a national emergency happening. And yet this drug can't be given to people with severe monkeypox and severe pain unless doctors do it under an investigational protocol that requires them to fill out reams of paperwork and obtain extensive patient-informed consent as though we didn't know that this medication was safe. 
This process is time consuming and it's far beyond what the typical physician in a busy office has time to complete or staff to help with. Since taking the medication has been shown in humans to be safe, the greatest risk is that maybe this medication won't be effective, at least as effective as the anecdotal reports say. But that's a tiny risk compared to the level of pain that patients have. It seems that whether we're talking about COVID or monkeypox, the regulatory bodies don't seem capable of doing the logical thing when this approach is different than what has been done in the past. Viruses are taking advantage of this lack of flexibility. The official conclusion is that without information from randomized controlled trials, a regulatory body doesn't know whether tecoviramat would be, and I quote, beneficial, harmful, or have no effect on people with monkeypox. The NIH could do a rapid two-week study to see if the drug worked and to note whether there were any significant side effects from taking it. Maybe that wouldn't be sufficient for publication in a peer-reviewed journal, but we don't have six months to wait. Not all drugs are the same. Faced with a growing epidemic, a big upside and a tiny downside, the FDA needs to take a different approach than when there's a completely new and untested drug. But that has yet to happen. Jeremy, we paid a huge price over the past two years when it came to COVID. And unfortunately, we're repeating the mistakes when it comes to monkeypox. Let me ask you, Jeremy, among the people you know in Iowa, how top of the mind is monkeypox? Robbie, I haven't really heard uh, much concern about it at all, except for uh, a few people in the gay community. Um, I think people are much less worried about it around here because it isn't spread via aerosol. Um, and therefore, in a place as spread out as Iowa, it's much easier to protect yourself against um, when you're not as in crowded situations with other people. I also think that after COVID-19, I think there's fatigue around any sort of new healthcare restrictions or healthcare emergencies, especially one that's not airborne or anything like that. But I also think if this virus does jump over and uh, become significant in the heterosexual population as well, I think there will be significant, uh, significantly more concern around it. Robbie, can you give another example of lack of logic and where it's needed to break the rules? Jeremy, unfortunately, the list of examples is very long. Let's look at hospital funding. We tell ourselves that all hospitals in the United States that provide the same care are equivalently funded so that people, regardless of race, get the same care. And then when we see outcomes being worse for Black patients, we act surprised. Researchers from Harvard, Johns Hopkins, Princeton, and UCLA use Medicare and American Hospital Association data from 5,740 hospitals to compare the dollars paid to those hospitals with a large number of black patients. In their study, 44% of the total patient population versus other hospitals that are predominantly treating white patients with only on average 5% black patients. They found that the hospitals that treated large numbers of black patients were paid $283 less per patient per day than ones that cared for predominantly white patients. 
As a result, the average payment per admission corrected for the procedures that are done and the severity of disease treated in the hospitals that are caring for a large number of black patients was $1,736. While in these other hospitals, the ones caring for predominantly white patients, $2,313, were a difference of close to $600 per admission, which is approximately 30% of the total revenue the facility received. And as a consequence, Black-dominated hospitals on average lost $17 per patient day, while the white-dominated ones had an average profit of $126. Now think about what those numbers mean. The white-dominated hospitals can spend $160 more per day to treat patients and still end up with $126 to invest in new buildings and machines compared to the high-volume Black patient facilities. Is there any wonder why outcomes are different in these two populations? And yet, although we have this, these statistics, although we recognize the unfairness of this payment rate, we do nothing to modify the rules by which hospitals are paid, and we continue to pretend that the playing field is level and fair. How about one more example, Ravi? Another example, Jeremy, of what is logically not being recognized or acknowledged comes from the world of organ transplantation. I don't know how much you or the listeners know about organ transplantations and how they're governed and overseen in the United States. There's an organization, UNIS, UNOS, or the United Network for Organ Sharing, that has ultimate power. It's a not-for-profit that contracts with the federal government for this role. And all the board members doing so are not paid. It's a volunteer basis. And they're elected by a vote of the participating programs. You know, all that sounds fair and equitable. So you realize that all of these board members making these decisions come from facilities that do large numbers of transplants and they make large profits as a result. Now ask yourself, if representatives from these hospitals are the ones making the decision, how likely are they to make major changes or would they prefer the status quo? And are they likely to uncover problems or more likely to dismiss them as one-time random events? You know, all this came to light during a probe of UNOS by the Senate Finance Committee. The committee identified nearly 250 organ transplant recipients in the US who contracted a disease from the donor organs and more than a quarter of them died. Committee Chair Senator Ron Wyden, the Democrat from Oregon said, as our investigation shows, this is a quote, Eunice is doing this job quite poorly. He went on to say, quote, serious errors in the procurement and transplant system are shockingly common. They concluded that Eunice provided little oversight for errors. You know, what's amazing to me is that people were surprised. When there's a multi-billion dollar industry that involves risk to people, leaving the decisions to the individuals with the most to gain or lose financially is a recipe for problems. And yet the rule is, trusted to the experts, rather than recognizing the biases people have, particularly when they benefit or are hurt by the decisions that are made. 
And of course, what was equally predictable was Eunice's response. Brian Shepard, the CEO said, quote, we work with transplant hospitals, organ procurement organizations, and inpatients to address the most important issues in donation and transplant. And we leverage experts in the field of research, technology, and science to continually improve our national system. All that's true, but none of that contradicts the intrinsic conflicts of interest or obviates the likelihood that failures and errors will be minimized among colleagues rather than aggressively investigated with significant penalties put into place. Robbie, to read some Forbes you said you thought that most people were putting COVID in the rearview mirror of their mind. Is that happening? Absolutely, Jeremy. That prediction is coming true and faster than I anticipated. New data from the Annenberg Public Policy Center found that over half of Americans rarely or never wear masks. 41% they say they've returned to their normal pre-pandemic life. And that's compared to only 16% in January. Moreover, over half of respondents knew someone who had died from COVID and one third reported knowing someone who had developed long COVID. And over half said that it would be likely that even in someone who was vaccinated but not boosted, that they would contract COVID sometime over the next three months. This survey fully aligns with what we predicted in our past Diving Deep podcast, and it is coming to fruition. The question is going to be, what is going to be the impact of this loosening of restrictions and this more laissez-faire attitude of Americans? Robbie, I read that with all the CDC's failures relative to COVID, the director announced a plan to transform the agency. What did she say, and how optimistic are you that it will solve the problem? You're absolutely correct, Jeremy. In an email to employees, she provided a mere culpa that the agency had failed to respond effectively and appropriately to the COVID-19 pandemic. She pointed to systemic failures at the CDC and said that, quote, traditional scientific and communication processes were not adequate. She talked about a variety of improvements, including releasing scientific data faster, translating scientific findings into easy to understand policy, better communication with the public, and incentivizing the workforce to better respond to health emergencies. And she made some personnel announcements designed to drive these changes. My view is that these problems will persist without far more radical changes. The culture of large governmental bureaucratic agencies, it's flawed. You know, you can't address a major pandemic by looking backward at the data that already exists. You need to be proactive and make changes appropriate for the future. You can't embrace a one-size-fits-all approach in the face of a virus that impacts people differently. And I believe you have to listen to people as intensely as you tell them how to behave and what to do. And all of that conflicts the background and approaches of the leadership of the agency. The structure and the culture of an agency like the CDC do well when issues are relatively predictable and they evolve slowly. They fail miserably in the face of a crisis that changes day to day. And we're continuing to see that relative, not only to COVID, but to monkeypox. 
where once again, the CDC is far behind the pace of the epidemic. And we even are seeing it in polio. This is a horrific disease that we thought was completely eliminated in the United States. But recently, a, a case was detected in New York, a full two months after the virus was most likely circulating. The director's plan, especially her admission of failure, was positive. But her solution, it's too little, too late. And that's worrisome for the health of the nation. Robbie, as usual, what's new relative to kids? As you know, Jeremy, we're within a week or two of schools reopening for the academic year. And doctors are very worried that as a result of COVID, there will be a large number of students across the country who are now behind in receiving the needed vaccines to protect them against a variety of childhood diseases, and particularly the vaccine to protect them from the highly transmissible measles virus. In the first two months of 2022, measles cases rose worldwide by 79%. As I just mentioned, polio, a disease that our nation had eliminated has returned with an individual becoming paralyzed for life after an infection. The current vaccine against polio, it's highly effective and safe. And yet vaccination rates against this paralytic disease have plummeted. In fact, in Rockland County, New York, where the first case was identified, vaccination rates are currently only 60.5%. And coming out of COVID, with vaccine hesitancy still high, childhood immunization will be far more of a challenge to accomplish than prior to the start of the pandemic. And when it comes to kids, a second problem is the data on their mental health status. It's becoming more concerning by the month. In a new report from the Annie Casey Foundation, anxiety and depression in American children rose from 9.4% in 2016 to 11.8% in 2020. And it happened both in rural red states like South Dakota, where it rose by 102%, and urban blue ones like California, where it increased by 70%. Robbie, listeners keep encouraging us to expand part of the podcast focused on events in medicine beyond COVID. What's new? Jeremy, the biggest news was the enactment of the Inflation Reduction Act. It included massive changes relative to both climate and healthcare. The climate provisions hopefully will slow the rise in temperature that increasingly is having negative impacts on the health and well-being of people. The medicine-specific changes include extending for three years the added coverage for people under the ACA. This is the coverage that was implemented during the pandemic capping the out-of-pocket cost for people with Medicare to $2,000 per year for drugs, that would begin in 2025, allowing Medicare to negotiate prices for a limited number of drugs, and that will start in 2026, and requiring drug manufacturers next year to begin to pay rebates to the federal government when the prices they charge exceed the inflation rate. This legislation is a small step forward in response to the exorbitant pricing approaches of the drug industry, but it is a step in the right direction. At the same time, these actions are limited to Medicare and they won't help people under the age of 65 with commercial insurance. And they won't affect the massive prices drug companies charge 
for new drugs. Most recent example is a medication to treat an inherited blood problem called thalassemia. And the drug that's administered has a price tag of $2.8 million for one patient. It's clear that despite the protestations of the drug industry, this legislation won't negatively impact the development of new medications. An independent analysis by the Congressional Budget Office concluded that at most 1% fewer new drugs would be developed over the next 30 years. However, what's feared is that the drug industry seeing reduced profits from Medicare, they'll just simply raise prices for everyone else. This is similar to the cost shifts hospitals do that we've talked about in past episodes where they charge commercially insured patients, people insured through their work, much higher rates than they charge Medicare or that Medicare pays them and drug companies that dramatically raise prices on those medications that will not be coming under this price review approach. What else? Jeremy, a second massive story was Amazon's acquisition of One Medical for $3.9 billion. One Medical is a highly regarded provider of in-person and technologically advanced primary care. There's almost a million members with 188 clinics in 25 geographies across the country. Previously, Amazon had acquired a company called PillPack, which provided Amazon with licenses to distribute and dispense medications in all 50 states. And over the past two years, the company has opened on-site clinics in multiple locations that are available, not just for their own employees, but for patients in the surrounding community. And they've provided telemedicine appointments and services across the United States. This is another step forward in what I believe will be Amazon's efforts to become as powerful a player in healthcare as in, as in retail. And it wouldn't surprise me if the company is successful in this strategy over the next five to 10 years. Didn't Amazon try something like this before through Haven? You're absolutely right, Jeremy. Three years ago, Amazon, JP Morgan Chase, and Berkshire Hathaway joined together to create a not-for-profit healthcare company designed to provide medical care to their 1.2 million employees. But at the time I said that anyone who believes that Jeff Bezos is doing this only for these employees and as a not-for-profit venture, they probably also believe that Amazon only sells books. No, I think the breakup of Haven was more about the disparate visions of the three CEOs, which included Bezos, Warren Buffett and Jamie Dimon than the complexities of medicine. And we can predict that Amazon's strategy in healthcare will be to duplicate what it's done in retail and to put the customer, meaning in medicine, the patient, ahead of the provider. It would include major transparency of data and dozens, if not hundreds of user reviews. And it will insist that the providers of care increase quality, improve access, give patients the convenience that they desire while driving down costs and prices. You know, any physician who thinks there's no imperative to improve how healthcare is provided today, they'd better wake up before they're left behind. Any other broad healthcare events? Jeremy, although we've been concerned that chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE, which by the way is an incurable disease of the brain that results from repeated head trauma. Research has now proven 
its association with repeated injury. Published in the Frontiers of Neurology, researchers found that athletes who participate in contact sports have a 68 times greater likelihood of developing CTE than the population in general. Based on this concern, the English Football Association in 2020 banned headers in soccer practice for children under the age of 12. And of course, similar concerns have been expressed relative to American football and rugby. Jeremy, on our Breaking the Rules podcast, you've had the chance to hear from a variety of national experts who have led the way in driving medical change. What are your thoughts? What makes some individuals capable of accomplishing this while the majority of others continue to follow the unwritten rules that exist? Robbie, I think my favorite conversation about rule breakers so far has been our one with Lindsay Fitzharris, who wrote the books about both Joseph Lister and more recently Howard Gillies. I was also really inspired by your recent TEDx talk and your mention of Semmelweis. I think one of the things I find most fascinating about rule breakers is that they're not afraid to go against the grain, even when society and culture, even when the society or the culture they are in goes against them and consistently tells them they're wrong. They weren't scared to stand up to herd mentality and fight the status quo, even often ruining their personal or professional reputation, sometimes even leading to career and financial ruin. Oftentimes, rule breakers are not appreciated until much later in life or until even long after they've passed away. One constant theme from our deep dive into rule breakers, both past and present, is it is not easy to break the rules. Breaking the rules for the cause of good can have a lot of negative consequences for the person breaking the rules. It makes me wonder how many rule breakers from history were either silenced or were never able to make the impact they were trying to make, but were absolutely right and noble in their cause. How many people throughout history have tried to break the rules and failed and were ruined for their efforts? This is a question we can obviously never know the answer to. Robbie, my biggest takeaway about rule breakers is that breaking the rules comes with massive risk and often no personal reward. In fact, oftentimes quite the opposite. Breaking the rules requires an immense bravery in the face of whatever establishment they're up against. This bravery, along with some of the amazing stories of rule breakers, like I said, both past and present, and the risks they took and the negative consequences they faced due to their breaking the rules, has made me respect and admire these rule breakers even more than before. Robbie, any parting thoughts? Jeremy, I've heard many people talk about how COVID-19 has made the flaws in medicine visible. I see it a little differently. To me, the flaws were clearly evident before the pandemic. That's why I wrote the book, Mistreated, why we think we're getting good healthcare while we're usually wrong. What's most worrisome to me are the myriad of ways that COVID has made all of the problems so much worse. Two years of not paying attention to chronic diseases and people not obtain the preventive services they need, that's produced an increase in heart attack, strokes, and kidney failure. Two years of growing burnout amongst doctors and nurses. This is producing an even larger crisis in primary care and in hospitals than we had before. Two years of skipping vaccination for kids this is gonna to lead to deaths and infirmity for decades to come. Two years of isolation, mental health difficulties, and time lost from education, this is gonna inflict major damage for decades and even generations. And two years of a growing rift between Americans in rural and urban settings, blue and red states, this will make addressing 
these challenges and these growing problems almost impossible. COVID-19 hasn't just exposed the fissures that exist, but like freezing water, it's expanded them and it's negatively changed the landscape for the foreseeable future. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus The Truth, and have a great day.